Hello and welcome to the story of Singapore, episode 12, Fakwa v Raffles. Raffles had usurped Fakwa. There was no question about that. Still reeling from the whiplash, Fakwa was stupefied by how rapidly his illustrious career of 30 plus years with the company had fallen apart. On the 19th of May, 1823, he heard rumours of his impending replacement. And three days later, the news was confirmed. Another five days later, John Crawford, his official replacement, arrived in Singapore. And Fakwa was resident of Singapore no more. However, this did not come from nowhere. The reality was that, behind the scenes, Raffles had been pulling the strings of Fakwa's undoing for the past three or so years. Fakwa failed to spot the clues before the rug was pulled out from under him. When Raffles ordered Fakwa to hand over his civil duties and responsibilities to Crawford upon the latter's arrival, Fakwa testily replied that since Raffles had stripped him of his office at the start of May, he had no portfolio to relinquish. Raffles regarded Farquhar's response as yet another act of insubordination. At the same time, Raffles removed Farquhar as commandant of the troops and ordered him to not only hand over his military duties and responsibilities to a junior officer upon Crawford's arrival, but also be struck off the strength of the garrison. Raffles' preemptive termination of Farquhar as both resident and commandant of Singapore was not sanctioned by the Bengal government. However, it was designed to further discredit and humiliate the man. In the eyes of others, Farquhar must have committed an offence so severe and unforgivable that it warranted such an abrupt and unceremonious exit. The fact that he was a decorated officer with a distinguished record only exacerbated this perception. Naturally, Farquhar was incensed. He protested his harsh and disgraceful treatment. But for now, he would obey orders to keep the peace and turn to due process to seek redress. He penned a complaint to the Bengal government about the wrongful dismissal and appealed for more details so that he might address the accusations and clear his name. In the meanwhile, it was time for Farquhar to wrap up and pack up. When Crawford assumed the office of the resident of Singapore, Farquhar submitted his expense claims. If you recall from episode 9, Farquhar had incurred a few out-of-pocket expenses during his administration of Singapore due to monetary shortages and budget deficits. For a start, the hiring of temporary staff such as extra writers was necessary to cope with the heavy administrative workload. However, Raffles rejected this expense claim explaining that Farquhar was not authorised to employ them and that they were not really that necessary. The Bengal government, on the flip side, later overturned the decision and reimbursed Farquhar. Next, Farquhar's private residential complex doubled as the colony's treasury, public office, courthouse and church. In principle, rent could be claimed for the use of his private estate for official purposes since Farquhar had fully funded its construction himself. Again, Raffles rejected this expense claim, even though he had accepted a similar expense claim submitted by his brother-in-law. 
the Bengal government reviewed the case and eventually compensated Farqua, but only much later. Apart from his usual job scope, Farqua had also undertaken several initiatives and miscellaneous functions on behalf of the company. Surveys of the settlements and the island were conducted to understand its geographical features and create maps. Farqua might have been excluded from the town committee, but his maps no doubt contributed to the designing of the Raffles town plan. Likewise, receiving foreign delegates and other important guests was part of his diplomatic responsibilities, but the cost of entertaining and arranging accommodations for these visitors were not factored into Farqua's pay and allowance. Needless to say, Raffles rejected this expense claim too, asserting that Farqua's salary and living allowances were generous and more than sufficient to cover all his duties. This time, the Bengal government concurred with Raffles' assessment and refused to reimburse Farqua for those expenses. Ironically, subsequent residents of Singapore, including Crawford, were all given supplementary allowances for similar expenses. Raffles could not resist throwing roadblocks in Farqua's way until the end, but his shenanigans did not last too long. On the 9th of June, 1823, Two weeks after Crawford had arrived, Raffles departed Singapore for good, ready to retire. In contrast, Farqua was stuck in the settlement for the next six months. He could not leave Singapore until his public accounts and other records had all been updated and approved. They had fallen behind ever since Raffles stopped by Singapore and began meddling with its administration eight months ago. The vanity projects that Raffles had launched created unnecessary heaps of paperwork on top of the day-to-day -day running of the settlement. Without sufficient clerical staff, Farqua simply could not have kept up. Not to mention, many of these projects were left incomplete and underfinanced. Crawford's administration would have to pick up the tab for Raffles' sloppy management. Farqua was picking up the pieces too. Six months was ample time for him to stew in his thoughts. We will never know for certain what ran through his mind, but it is not hard to imagine the emotional turbulence that stormed his heart. Singapore, once the fruit of his labour, his pride and joy, was now tinged with shame, a bitter reminder of betrayal and downfall. Towards the end of June, Farqua wrote to the man he once considered a friend for the last time. He challenged his dismissal from office, surmising that the Bengal government only made the decision to replace him under two false premises, that he wanted to leave Singapore and that the narrative provided by Raffles was true. Farqua reiterated that under his charge, Singapore had experienced a rate of growth second to none especially in terms of population, trade, general prosperity, and diplomatic relations with other Southeast Asian states. Farqua also refuted the presumption that Crawford held a higher rank than him, simply because Crawford was now directly answerable to the Bengal government, whereas Farqua had been operating under Raffles' supervision the whole time. This 
additional layer in the hierarchy did not make Farquhar any less eligible than Crawford was to serve as the resident of Singapore. More importantly, Farquhar's roles and responsibilities were not diminished just because he was being overseen. In fact, it only resulted in communication breakdowns that made his job all the more difficult, and needlessly so. Finally, Farqua questioned the way Raffles was claiming credit for Singapore's exceptional development and pushing blame for its shortcomings. He pointed out that Raffles' recent endeavours could have benefited the settlement a lot more without draining the coffers if Raffles had made more economical and pragmatic choices instead of steamrolling his plans and paying people off. Believing that he had not erred in his administration, Farqua was confident that his public conduct would survive any corruption investigations or performance evaluations. Farqua also wrote to an influential friend, the richest merchant in British India with deep political connections in the company, to make sense of the situation and consider his options. His friend was appalled to learn of Raffles' behaviour and his abuses of power. However, he forewarned that the Bengal government would most likely side with seniority and Raffles would ultimately be given a free pass. Back in the Calcutta office, the fog was clearing up. As letters and reports from Fakwa and Crawford came in, the details began crystallising. Adam, the acting Governor-General of British India, realised that he had made a terrible mistake. He should have fact-checked Raffles' stories before rendering a verdict on Farqua. But now, it was well beyond the point of return. Now, saving face was the name of the game. Dispatches were sent to Raffles, chastising him for his actions and conduct. Just because Raffles was in Singapore did not mean he could completely negate Farqua's official duties. He had no legal right or reasonable basis to supplant Farqua's authority without authorization from the Bengal government. Adam took exception to the measures that Raffles had adopted in the month leading up to Farqua's official replacement, especially since Crawford was already en route. They were so extreme and callous that only a real emergency could have justified them. Dispatches were also sent to Farqua, regretting that his handover had not been managed in a sensitive and dignified manner. However, Adam rejected Farqua's request for more details on the allegations against him because Raffles had not made or pressed any specific charges. He reassured Farqua that his administration of Singapore did not lower the Bengal government's estimation of him. Hoping that Farqua would quietly accept the resolution, Adam maintained that the decision to replace him was not punitive in any way. It was inevitable. Surely, once Farqua had read their reasons, he would understand the government's decision. Farqua, of course, remained unconvinced. The Bengal government had effectively conceded that there was no misconduct on Farqua's part and that Raffles had stepped way out of line. This acknowledgement only made his removal from Singapore seem even more unfair and unjustified. Rage was burning in Farqua's heart. Instead of placating the man, Adam's words 
stoked the flames. Yet, the letter also carried a hint of hope. Hope that the Bengal government might, after all, take Farquhar's side, restore his honour and reappoint him as the resident of Singapore. It was with that hope that Farquhar prepared his departure from Singapore as the end of the year approached. When the various communities heard of Farquhar's impending departure, they felt compelled to give the man a proper send-off. The Bugis, Indian and Chinese communities thanked the man for his kindness and support through the years, while the Bugis people and Indians expressed their wishes for his return and reinstatement as the resident of Singapore, the Chinese eulogized his character and achievements in a speech and bequeathed to Farquhar a silver epern as a symbol of their admiration and gratitude. An epern is an ornamental centerpiece for a dining table with branches and bowls to hold candles, fruits and flowers. As for the European merchant community, though it was in their self-interest to maintain political neutrality, they too presented Farquhar with a farewell address, along with an ornate silver cup as a gesture of appreciation for his goodwill and contributions as a private individual. Farquhar was moved by their sincerity. It was a stark contrast to the animosity he had been dealing with. The gifts from the Chinese and Europeans were highly valuable, but Farquhar could not formally accept them. Given the difficult circumstances of his departure, he had to seek approval from the Bengal government first or risk undermining his credibility even further. Accepting any gift now would have elicited the impression that his impartiality had truly been compromised, possible evidence of bribery and corruption. When Raffles left Singapore in June, he had no one to wave him goodbye. When it was Farquhar's turn, it could not have been more different. A Malay writer wrote four pages describing how Singapore was mourning the loss of a great man and its pioneer. All the crowds, gifts, music, banners, and echoes of grief. The Singapore Chronicle, the settlement's first newspaper, published its very first issue with an article on Farquhar's departure too, proclaiming that it was impossible to convey the collective sorrow of the population. On the 28th of December, 1823, Farquhar finally embarked on his quest to salvage his reputation. But whether he knew it or not, it would be his last time in Singapore. Before leaving Southeast Asia, Farquhar decided to stop by his old workplace of Malacca. It had been a long time, but his contributions to the city were not forgotten, and the Dutch administration welcomed him with a salute. Following that, he spent six days in Penang among some old friends before bidding them adieu. On the 20th of January, 1824, Farquhar set a course for British India. Arriving in Calcutta on the 6th of February, Farquhar was looking to persuade the Bengal government to reverse their decision and restore him to his former office. However, Adam was gone having transferred his temporary charge of British India to the new Governor-General back in August 1823. In all the charges, 
that Raffles had levied against Farquhar were dropped. This sounds like good news, but in my opinion, it is a terrible one for three reasons. Firstly, a dismissal of charges does not mean you are innocent of a crime. It means that the prosecution may not have the evidence they need to bring the case to trial and confidently produce a guilty verdict. This leaves things open to interpretation. After all, the public does not have full access to the details of the case. People may form an impression that you have covered your tracks well and managed to escape with your ill-gotten gains. For high-profile individuals like Farquhar, this stigma is detrimental to their careers because it stains their character and integrity. Secondly, considering that Raffles had been making insinuations in his private and official capacities in the past two or so years, the web of gossip and rumours must have stretched far and wide. Without a public investigation or trial, Farquhar would not have the platform and reach to refute the lies that Raffles had been spinning. The circumstances of his administration of Singapore, as well as the private communication between Raffles and the Bengal government, would also not be made known to the public. As a result, Farquhar would lose much of the firepower he needed to appeal against his removal from Singapore. Thirdly, the Bengal government could now reframe Farquhar's replacement as a strategic decision rather than as a hasty judgment rooted in false narratives. This perspective not only legitimized their decision as a fair and logical one, but also undermined the fact that Farquhar had been thrown under the bus. Both Raffles and the Bengal government were responsible for this fiasco. Yet, the mistreatment that Farquhar had suffered was attributed only to Raffles. As Farquhar's friend had astutely put it, the government's priority would not be to do Farquhar justice, but to protect themselves from embarrassment. Farquhar attempted to push his agenda, but he was flogging a dead horse. The Bengal government saw no reason to deviate from their original resolutions. Furthermore, the blunt tonality of his letters only annoyed them, and the Governor-General admonished Farquhar for indulging himself in criticising the procedures and policies of the government. Seeing as there was no other choice, Farquhar requested the Bengal government to send the relevant documents to London. He was taking the matter further upstairs. On the 9th of March, 1824, about a month after he had arrived in British India, Farquhar was back on the water. Coincidentally, Farquhar's nemesis was also heading for Britain. Just as Farquhar had spent the last few months winding down his affairs in Singapore, Raffles had also been doing the same in Ben Coolen. Among his friends, Raffles continued his slanders and lies. He confided that despite his poor health, he had to not only rebuild the settlement from the ground up, but also deal with hostility coming from Farquhar's camp. Raffles also brushed off Farquhar's petition as futile. In fact, Farquhar would be better off leaving quietly because, well, no one in Singapore seemed to care for him apart from his immediate family. Yet, beneath this facade, Raffles was apprehensive. With Adam disapproving of his conduct and the Bengal government now putting him on the hot seat, 
Raffles could not tell what all this growing fuss might lead to. He had a sizable pension waiting back home, but he needed to submit a statement to the company and get it endorsed before receiving the sum. If Farquhar's case went through first, there was a very real risk that all would be lost. So, on the 2nd of February, 1824, four days before Farquhar arrived in Calcutta, Raffles set sail from Bankulan. The timing was tight, but luckily for Raffles, Farquhar was going to be stuck in British India for a while. He would have plenty of leeway to get his pension before... And... never mind. On that very same evening, the ship was ravaged by fire. A steward was drawing brandy from a cask in the storeroom when he accidentally ignited the alcoholic vapours with a candle. When the fire reached the gunpowder magazine, the ship exploded. Thankfully, the captain ordered an evacuation before the explosion. All aboard the ship survived, but they lost all their personal possessions. For Raffles, that included much of what he and his wife had been accumulating throughout his career in Southeast Asia. Countless documents, unique archives, irreplaceable artifacts, and priceless jewellery. Karma. The failed voyage was a major setback, and Raffles would have to wait for the next ship bound for Britain. Now, it was a race against time for his pension. Raffles reached London on the 22nd of August, 1824, three days behind Farquhar. Both men got to work immediately. Raffles was the first mover. On the 3rd of November, 1824, he submitted his statement of the services, providing a record of his public career and requesting to be compensated for his losses when his ship was destroyed. However, six weeks later, before Raffles could get his pension approved, Farquhar submitted his memorial to the Court of Directors, detailing his grievances against Raffles and requesting to be reinstated as resident of Singapore. Now, the Court of Directors was the executive body of the East India Company. Here was where the highest levels of political and administrative decisions were made. Its directors were elected by the company's shareholders, but their policies were ultimately controlled by the British Parliament. Shortly after submission, Farquhar's petition was referred to one of its committees for further evaluation. And so, the stage was set for litigation. For the plaintiff Farquhar, his reputation was at stake, but for the defendant Raffles, his pension was on the line. The structure of the proceedings went as follows. Farquhar submitted his memorial for the committee's consideration. Raffles read Farquhar's memorial and submitted his response. Then, Farquhar submitted his final clarifications. And finally, the committee convened to deliberate on the outcome. The proceedings were fairly straightforward, not the kind of long, drawn-out court battles you might have expected, but they were substantial. Farquhar's memorial was nearly 37,000 words long, Raffles' response 28,000 words, and Farquhar's clarifications 15,000. Since much of their contention has been covered in previous episodes, I will simply reiterate the main points but leave out the details and peripheral arguments. 
Farquhar opened his memorial with a complaint about his sudden and undignified removal from office. He had a long and distinguished career with the company, but the manner of his dismissal was completely unjustifiable and besmirched his good name. While highlighting the achievements he had accrued over the years, Farquhar asserted that he was the one who had suggested Singapore as a site for the new British colony and the one who had brought Singapore to a success in his three and a half years as its resident. This was Farquhar's first point of contention. Farquhar's second point of contention was the way Raffles had treated him during Raffles' eight months in Singapore. Farquhar argued that as the two of them began clashing over matters related to local governance, it was Raffles who turned hostile, acted as he pleased, and ignored directives from the Bengal government. Additionally, the Bengal government only ordered Farquhar's replacement as resident of Singapore, but Raffles went ahead and ordered his replacement as commandant without the government's authorization. In other words, Raffles was a tyrant. Farquhar's third and final point of contention was the complete lack of grounds Raffles had in dismissing him. Zeroing in on the crux of their conflict, Farquhar maintained that he had stuck with Raffles' original plans as best as he could. He did not allocate land unfairly and he did not purposely deviate from instructions for his own private benefit. Though Raffles had reserved the north bank of the Singapore River for government purposes, it was also the only suitable site for a commercial district, which was critical to the development of a trade settlement. Even so, the land was granted to the merchants conditionally. His actions were reversible. The enormous expenses incurred over this issue was not because of him or any of his policies, but because Raffles ignored Hastings' directives and rushed to demolish the buildings and relocate the inhabitants. Furthermore, Raffles did not even move the commercial district back to its original site at East Beach. Instead of owning up to his mistake, Raffles pushed the blame to Farqua. All in all, Farqua suspected that the Bengal government's decision to replace him was based on lies and rumours manufactured by Raffles. It was an error, but only because of the unavoidable complications the government faced due to distance from their dependencies and the lack of first-hand information. To which Farqua empathised. He accepted that they could not reverse their decisions themselves after discovering their error without harming their political legitimacy. However, he appealed to the committee. Though the Bengal government had dropped all charges against him and reassured that his dismissal was not a reflection of his character or integrity, Farqua felt that his reinstatement as the resident and commandant of Singapore would be the only way he could truly restore his honour. About a month after Farquhar submitted his memorial, Raffles sent in his response. He questioned the timing of Farquhar's petition, especially since Farquhar only submitted his memorial to the Court of Directors some six weeks after Raffles had published his statement of the services and was awaiting his pension. There had to be a certain vindictiveness on Farquhar's part for him to attempt to thwart Raffles. Brushing off Farquhar's past achievements altogether 
which represented a significant portion of his evidence, Raffles reminded the committee that he had never criticised Farquhar's conduct and merits in Malacca, even though before Singapore, Farquhar had failed in his earlier attempts to secure British foothold in the Riau archipelago, which is located towards the south and east of Singapore. Then, Raffles launched into a tirade on Farquhar's three points of contention. Farquhar's claim that he had suggested Singapore as a site for the settlement was preposterous. On the contrary, Farquhar only knew of the plan to establish a colony when Hastings authorised Raffles to establish one in Singapore. Raffles declared that Farquhar's claim could not be substantiated by any public record and that the committee could refer to the full details of the founding of Singapore in Raffles' own reports to Hastings if they wished. Of course, Raffles forgot to comment on the inaccuracies, inconsistencies, and gaps in his correspondences with the Bengal government. Regarding his tyrannical conduct, Raffles maintained that he had treated Farqua with due respect and professionalism, but Raffles simply could not allow Farqua to flush Singapore's progress down the drain. Farqua's administration was chock full of inefficiencies, mismanagements, and stupid decisions. All these issues were reviewed in Raffles' repeated complaints to the Bengal government, which led into Farquhar's third point. What were these so-called issues that could justify Raffles dismissing Farquhar in the manner that he did? Raffles had a list. 1. Farquhar was not cooperative. He refused to render his assistance to Raffles in fixing problems that had sprung due to his deviations from protocols. He actively resisted and opposed the changes that Raffles had instituted to improve the colony. The cost incurred by Raffles' actions were the result of Farquhar's incompetent administration. Raffles was forced to repossess all land, tear down buildings, and reset the settlement. Oh, and the thing about the North Bank and East Beach? Well, Adam approved it, so no problems there. 2. Farquhar attempted to establish a patronage network that centred around himself. He obstructed free trade in Singapore by preventing merchants from communicating with other rulers in the region or signing commercial contracts without being authorised by him. This was only rectified when Raffles stepped in, a decision that was endorsed by Adam. Ironically, Farquhar was trying to uphold a free trade principle by preventing merchants from colluding with these rulers to form monopolies which would kill competition and destroy free trade. 3. Farquhar allowed vices and social ills to flourish in Singapore. He implemented gambling and cockfighting licenses despite orders to the contrary. By the time Raffles returned in 1822, these social ills had been institutionalised. Raffles could only abolish a cockfighting farm and modify the existing system to regulate gambling. More egregiously, Farquhar also upheld and promoted the slave trade in Singapore. Remember that at this point in history, the British public was still riding high from the abolitionist movement, so authorities were looking to curb the slave trade in their overseas colonies too. 4. Farquhar did not even want to be part of Singapore. He had to be coaxed into joining the expedition to establish the colony in the first place 
he was not enthusiastic about being appointed resident and commandant of Singapore, and he had been pressing Raffles for permission to take leave, only to turn fickle and stay for another year. Raffles made other convoluted arguments and even more insinuations too. But I will not touch on them because they can get quite technical and each requires background context which just bogs this whole part down. I think you get the gist. Raffles was making many claims about Fakwa, but the evidence backing his statements was either flimsy or non-existent. Raffles further added that since the Bengal government had judged Fakwa to be unfit for the office, then he should not be regarded as being unfair to Fakwa. He was simply carrying out their orders. In light of the new accusations that surfaced in Raffles' response, the committee decided to give Fakwa a final opportunity to provide clarifications on these issues, but without raising additional concerns that would require the committee to check with Raffles again. Fakwa thought there was little else of value he could add. After all, the committee was already in possession of the comprehensive reports, explanations, and correspondences between Fakwa, Raffles, and the Bengal government. Fakwa submitted his clarifications, using it to reiterate his standpoint. He did not grant land permanently or unfairly. Much of the allegations that Raffles had made were exaggerations, unsubstantiated or plain wrong. Not to mention, the Bengal government had already accepted his explanations and approved his accounts. No irregularities were found. Regarding the gambling and cockfighting licenses, Farqua pointed out that Raffles did not ban these vices when colonial Singapore was founded. Rather, it was Farqua who first introduced restrictions on them. Raffles subsequently sanctioned these efforts and was the one who instructed Farqua to implement the licensing system. As for the slave trade, Farqua reminded the committee that Singapore was not owned by the British. The British basically signed a rental agreement with the Sultan in Temungkong in 1819 to lease the land for commercial and trading purposes. Singapore was therefore considered a native port, not a British port. While Europeans were subject to anti-slavery laws under his administration, the same could not be applied to the Malay rulers and their local communities. As signed in the treaty, the Malay rulers were given the right to retain their customary practices and exclusive privileges. Plus, Raffles did not leave any instructions on the matter. Once again, Farqua conceded that he might have made a few minor errors here and there. It was hard to keep track of every little expense his administration had incurred without proper staffing. However, he had always had the company's best interests at heart and performed his duties in good faith. Farqua was not what Raffles was making him out to be. He was not incompetent. He was not unscrupulous. Hoping that the committee would clear his reputation and do him justice, Farqua left his petition in their good hands. Next episode, the committee will decide, and the verdict will be out. The saga between the two founding fathers of colonial Singapore 
will finally come to a close. 